What's up, everybody? You're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. I'm Sam Graham-Felson. I'm Avi Klein. I'm a novelist. Avi's a therapist. And we're here to answer your questions and hopefully get a few of our own questions answered as well. Our guest this week is Ali Seti. Ali is a legitimate rock star in Pakistan and India. He has uh, millions of views for his videos. Uh, he has hundreds of thousands of loyal fans. He's also a novelist and a journalist and an all-around uh, brilliant thinker and person. Thanks. For people who aren't already huge fans of you and your work, just tell us where, where you grew up um, and just what that environment was like for you as a kid. So I grew up in Lahore in Pakistan um, in the early 1990s. Uh, so I'm a Pakistani millennial. Um, and then I um, came away to America uh, to study. I went to Harvard, like you, Sam. Not, no. not like I'm me. looking at Avi. No. Like, no. no. Um, you can just tell by looking at me. <laughs> you're like, I had a genuinely charmed life. <laughs> um, so I went to Harvard, uh, where I majored in South Asian studies um, and took a bunch of creative writing courses, which is what I wanted to do. Um, published a novel uh, right out of college. Um, was uh, a sort of correspondent for the New York Times op-ed page for a, a few years while I went back to Pakistan, um, where there was a lot of turmoil at that time. Um, and have also done, alongside all of these uh, literary activities, um, a formal apprenticeship in uh, classical Indian, South Asian uh, singing um, and music making. Uh, which has uh, lasted about a good 15 years, taken 15 years of my life. And now I live a kind of improvised, happily improvised life in which I perform, I record, I compose music, I produce music, I curate uh, uh, concerts, uh, musical segments for art fairs. Um, you know, uh, I write about music, I write about literature, I lecture about literature and music, and... What I'm happy to report is that actually those two things that at a certain point in my life used to feel very separate, music and literature, um, now feel kind of welded at the hip. So, um, uh, yes, I, Ali and I went to college together, although we didn't actually um, become friends until after college where we both worked at The Nation uh, a, a political uh, journal in, in New York City. Um, but uh, but we became friends then. And um, I will say, though, that, like, Ali is one of the more um, intellectually serious, intellectually rigorous people I've ever met. And, um, Ali, one thing that just really struck me when you made this um, transition into really doing more music... Um, I have to say, like, there was a part of me that was almost jealous because I felt like I'm, we're both writers, we're both novelists, but novelists spend so much time in their head, so much time intellectualizing things, you know, so much time thinking. And music just seems like something that's just like a domain so much more of feeling, and it's such a more visceral domain. And I just wonder, like, um, what's that been like for you to, and again, it's not like you've abandoned your writing or you've abandoned intellectual life. You're still doing that stuff, but music is the, is, is the lifeblood of your life at this point. I think it's fair to say. And what's that been like to go from the domain of like the thinking mind 
to just like the feeling space um, for you? It's been a revelation, uh, among other things. Um, you know, the culture that I come from um, has been historically suspicious of intellectualization. Um, even the great um, metaphysical poets of, uh, you know, the Sufi tradition or of the Hindu uh, bhakti tradition um, who have uh, created these really sophisticated uh, uh, literatures that are full of philosophical insight and emotional insight um, have kind of reserved a special scorn for the intellectualizers or those who uh, live exclusively in the realm of the mind. Is uh, that considered effeminate? I don't think it's considered effeminate. In fact, it's considered toxic masculine, if oh, anything, right? So the idea that there is this uh, in, 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 in the realm of poetry and music and the arts, and then also by extension in the realm of uh, administration, uh, kingship, you know, uh, uh, citizenship, um, and, the, and religion and, and devotion and worship. There's this idea that scholars and clerics, right, who are the keepers of knowledge, or scribes, who later then become novelists in the Western tradition, right? Um, the idea that those who deal only in knowledge um, tend to make abstract what is really only knowable through experience. Mm -hmm. So that idea... Um, is something that I grew up with, but then having gone to a place like Harvard, where of course everything in the liberal arts education, I don't know what it's like now, but certainly, uh, you know, some 10 years ago when I was there as an undergraduate, uh, you know, the art of writing a paper, what was it? You scanned a book, you know, um, in, in like five days and then wrote a paper about it. And you could choose a topic of your choice to write that paper on. Um, and you had to quote unquote make an argument, right? And what I found um, difficult at first was making an argument. You know, what is it to make an argument? Just coming to terms with that idea that you had to kind of go at it. Mm -hmm. That the text was external to you and then you had to go at it and you had to conquer it in some way or produce knowledge as, as you know, people said. Whereas my own instinctive sort of way of dealing with an encounter with a, with a beautiful work of literature or even a troubling work of literature or a problematic one would be to kind of express my experience of it, mm -hmm. right? Which is not necessarily in the realm of making an argument. It doesn't get expressed as an argument. Um, it may get expressed as an appreciation, um, or it may be expressed as, you know, a, a journal or an account. I think these things are now more possible, uh, perhaps thanks to social media. I now see a lot of literary reviews, etc., being written in the first person mm -hmm. in the New York Times. It was not possible 12 years ago, mm -hmm. really, where you were supposed to assume this detached, authoritative you know, regardless of who you were or what your relationship to the text was or whatever. So I think for music allowed me to get out of that quote-unquote headspace. There's a beautiful couplet from the Urdu that my teacher uh, used to recite to me. In Urdu it says, Akal ke madrasay se ut, ishq ke mein aa, which means get up from the madrasa of learning, right? Exit the, the, the library, and step into the tavern of love, right? So seek intoxication because intoxication, while 
it's ostensibly a, a zone where you lose control, um, actually may be a better way of experiencing and and entering into knowledge. You know, it, it's something that we talk about a lot is just, um, I don't know, for Sam and I at least, there's like a kind of vulnerability that we struggle with, with not just like expressing bad feelings, but also like desire and um, wanting, you know, and and that there's something much more comfortable about being maybe like detached and up here sure. and thinking about it versus doing it. And I don't know, that's what I'm hearing. I struggle with that a lot, actually, myself. Um, constantly, uh, my teacher is saying to me, sing it with feeling, you know, with more feeling. They use this word, dard, you know, sing it with dard, say it with dard. And dard literally would translate as pain, uh, but actually it's it's much more beautiful and supple than pain. Dard encompasses feeling of yeah. all kind, right? So let the feeling show. And I think vulnerability is very much a part of that. Um, and, you know, I think that's the the intellectual side of me still going at it with this kind of, I'm constructing something. It's very hard for me. It's like I, I can have feelings about ideas, you know, like, oh, what a beautiful way to frame it. And then that moves me instead of just being moved in the first place. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's my I'm life like, struggle. I like that too. Yeah. That's my so, life struggle. So tell us um, a little bit about the, the music you've been making lately in particular. Um, well, so I've trained in um, uh, a genre of Indian classical and devotional music called khayal, which is from the Arabic word takhayul. Um, khayal um, in contemporary language means thought or idea. When you say in Urdu, you know, mera khayal hai, it, you can literally begin a sentence with, I think that, you know, this is called khayal. And I think it has to do with improvisation, with imagination, with expressing your inner, innermost, you know, um, feelings. Um, it's on the one hand very structured because there are all these uh, rule-bound melodic uh, passages, um, hundreds of them, perhaps thousands, um, that you have to kind of exercise uh, with and and kind of just do the motions, you know, with these things as you're practicing and you're learning. Um, but what you end up acquiring is a kind of algorithm. Um, algorithmic sort of sense for how to create melody and how to play with melody and how to create counter melodies and also rhythms and counter rhythms. Um, so that is really what it is and it's not a notated music, it's not written down, uh, which makes it especially difficult to access. You have to uh, undertake an apprenticeship with a master or a maestra, which is what I did, um, and spend years, perhaps decades, just, you know, uh, working in this very intimate situation. So I did that. I have done that, continue to do it. It's been, you know, about 15 years. And um, now at the end of these 15 years, I find I'm in a place where I can use those algorithmic um, uh, uh, sort of techniques for making melodies, drawing on traditional melodies that themselves come from a very cosmopolitan encounter that happened in North India um, all through the, what, what Europe was the Middle Ages, right? So like I would say, around from the 11th century till about the, well, all the way to the 19th century. For those 800 years, there were Turks, Persians, Central Asians, Indian Hindus, um, South Indians, collaborating, exchanging dialogues, artifacts, ideas, languages. And the music and the poetry that expressed them is still performed in South Asia. So 
what I ended up kind of connecting with was this medieval or traditional culture that still speaks a kind of contemporary language in South Asia. So the music that I've started to make now is, at least I hope it is, simultaneously traditional and contemporary. And I'm, it's something that I've always wanted to do, and I, I guess we could talk about it, is as a dissenting, um, you know, non-conformist in many ways uh, person growing up in a Muslim society and then living in America, coming to America at a time when everything Muslim is suspect and under a lot of scrutiny. And you came and here right of, after 9-11. I right? did, I yeah. did. Um, and now I live between America and Pakistan. Um, the desire to reconcile seeming opposites has always been something, it's been like a kind of mission that I've carried w within me, I suppose because my parents are kind of those figures as well in Pakistan. My yeah. parents are, maybe you can say it. Well, I want to, I actually want to talk about your parents in the advice section because I think it's relevant. Um, but Avi's parents are both prominent um, journalists and, and not, um, democracy okay. activists. Uh, sorry, Ali's parents. Yeah. <laughs> not mine. <laughs> Avi's parents are not prominent activi democracy yeah. activists. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, they're both, um, and, and uh, they have throughout their careers and lives been targeted by the government and um, live in a fairly precarious situation because of the stakes that they've taken, the moral stance that they've taken. And so Ali grew up in that environment. And I want to save the discussion for that for the uh, advice question because I think it's highly relevant. So we'll, we'll get back to okay, that. Okay, sure. Um, but, 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 but certainly you grew up in a, in a political family, in a dissident yeah. family. So yeah. that, that has come into um, the work that you do as a musician. Absolutely. And the, and the songs that I'm making now kind of are protest pieces in their own way, but they refuse to surrender the elements of beauty, play, um, ambiguity, metaphor, uh, which I think I've been able to uh, kind of enter into via my training in music and poetry. One of the things I was curious about, you know, I was listening to your music and, and watching your videos um, in preparation for meeting you, and... You know, I had that. I I do like to listen to a fair amount of music that's made outside of the states, but you know, my encounter with it is, uh, you know, as a New Yorker, and I don't always have like the aesthetic criteria that are clear to me. So I'm wondering, like, like I could use some help in like uh, entering your music, and I wonder, one, like, uh, who are people in the states, maybe? that you might think of as who are like either inspirational or who are doing something that feels analogous to what, like how might I experience that here in the way that someone in, in Pakistan would experience what you're doing? Well, uh, to be honest, I think uh, the um, currently, and I think I'm moving more towards uh, a sort of culturally ambiguous direction now, but the music I've made thus far is really in some ways a kind of homage to the tradition that I'm coming out of and coming mm -hmm. from. Um, and so um, the new songs, I've put out about four new songs in the last four months, and they've all been produced by uh, Noah Georgeson, who's a producer in Los Angeles. And um, he, did the, he made the title track for Narcos, which is the Netflix show. And that's how I discovered him, is because I was in a store in London some five years ago, and I heard something and shazammed it, and I was like, this is the sound I want from my music. And it was a song sung by the guy who sang the Narcos soundtrack, Rodrigo, Rodrigo Amarante. And then I went and downloaded Rodrigo Amarante's entire record. 
and then just spent about two years like kind of you know cuddling it um and and <laughs> hugging it and 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 felt that that particular sensibility which was simultaneously felt contemporary and kind of hipster and kind of you know um uh, sort of deliberately artisanal in a time when everything is over digitized and kind of you know uh, conformist um it also felt like something from the global south rodrigo is brazilian and now lives i think in america or between america and brazil um so that's i think the kind of sound and then i mean i listen to a lot of sufian stevens who i've been listening to lately and i love i love his music i love the sort of element of storytelling and kind of this you know access to tentatively accessed memory that's like then strung along these like really gorgeous ukuleles and guitars mm-hmm. it's very sort of delicate and but somehow very powerful precisely because it is choose like drums and beat and all the rest of that so i i'm drawn to a lot of that stuff i think uh, but i would say that my music is is i think i'm still telling stories really that's what i'm doing if you look at the videos and if you listen to the music um you know there is an element of um dramatic sort of um tension being raised and then resolved in some way so i think maybe approach them like like vignettes from another culture so right now um india and pakistan seem to be on the brink although it's funny that phrase on the brink the new york review of books like every 2 years has an article pakistan and india on the brink it but, should be uh, a podcast all by itself <laughs> on, the on the brink um but um but you grew up um uh i mean ever since the partition there's been sort of tension and potential war right and um and in fact when um uh i came to visit your family in lahore um we took a little trip to the to the border of pakistan and india where they every day have a uh a, a sort of um on on one side of the fence the pakistani sort of patriots all celebrate their nuclear weapons and mm-hmm. then on the other side of the fence the indian patriots ce- mm-hmm. celebrate their nuclear weapons and it's this kind of dramatized bravado and um and uh anyway it obviously you could talk to us for years about what it was like growing up in in an environment like that um but some of the music you've been making now is specifically kind of um addressed to a, that a gesture towards towards peace on some level right yeah. um uh and i feel like i feel like there's two kinds of ways of 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 addressing a song to peace one is making like a no war right. yes peace like which also Lennon kind of kinda. which also feels a little bit like sort of presumptuous and arrogant to me that idea of like we're done with war right. you know like we want peace and we're men so we want peace so cuz if men can want peace then like women just should have it you know <laughs> it's that kind of like i feel it is still also like toxic masculine like it's performing itself to its own toxic masculinity i feel that the kind of music that i'm doing and this is in no way meant to praise my efforts but it's just a way to sort of clarify the intention which i think is different one of the things i was saying this to somebody an interview yesterday in fact that i think of when i think of my my journey into music my my decision as it were to kind of seek the music or to connect with the music or with this tradition was that when i was an undergraduate i remember i was doing a a course on on um, modern south asian history that was in fact taught by the nobel laureate amartya sen and one of the tas uh, um said to me i was writing a paper for her and i was saying well you know there are feminists and marxists and 
and, and you know activists and human rights activists in Pakistan and like why 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 are we not you know like counting their work when we think of and she said well we're looking at broad trends and we're looking at you know and I was like but why doesn't this count and she said to me I remember she said that's because secularist intellectuals don't have constituencies in Pakistan right and that really kind of just like it was like a dagger to my heart and I was like well but I also intuitively kind of know that that secularist intellectuals, while they may have audiences, they don't have the constituencies that right-wingers have, you know. And I mean, we see a lot of that in America today. We see how easy it is to undermine um, a quote-unquote liberal politician or a liberal commentator or to quote-unquote call out a liberal and how di- and often by self-proclaimed liberals themselves, right? And how difficult it is to uh, dislodge, uh, uh, you know, Groper, uh, you know, uh, assaulter, rapist, uh, you know, etc., etc., um, who is avowedly, you know, all of those things. And I thought that I immediately wondered to myself, who are the people who have those constituencies in South Asia and my culture? Like, you know, secularizing voices, uh, voices that, and by secularizing, I don't mean irreligious, I mean those who insist on multiple perspectives those who insist it's all involved in i think cosmopolitanism just multi the multi nature of the universe right and i thought oh they are the sufis they are the mystics they are the ones who you know uh, create or insist on 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 multiplicity as a way of accessing the ultimate oneness the idea that diversity is proof of unity and diversity is the only way to kind of you know insist on a very truthful idea of oneness it's an idea that you find a lot in jewish mysticism as well so I sought that out and the music and the poetry that I have been studying gave that to me in volumes and volumes. You know, Sufi masters have created vast bodies of work that are designed to arouse in people and to create in people appetites for multiplicity, right? Deliberately ungendered poems, right, which the Urdu language and the Punjabi language beautifully accommodate. Um, you know, mixing uh, imagery from Hindu mythology and Islamic theology. Just let me stop you. What yeah. is an ungendered po- like, how does that even work? That there, there, is there a neutral a pronoun in, in Urdu? Is that what you're saying? There's like a neutral pronoun? Yeah, We it's don't like, have a neutral pronoun. I mean, actually, now we do have neutral pronouns in America. Now you do. Now I we know. have they, but we didn't have Exactly. We have a they. Least. There you go. There's you a they. A you've, you've We've had a they for like a thousand years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. There you go. I never thought of that. This is beautiful. <laughs> this is wonderful. This is a whole other like thing. So these yeah. poems are basically using they. Poems. they. Absolutely. They poems. Okay. And they as they, by the way, which, because it's they, can be singular or plural, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can be masculine or feminine or neither. Which means it can be a person, right? It could be a society that you're addressing, a collective that you're addressing. Uh, you know, the Marxist uh, in variation on the Sufi poetry is then, or the socialist versions of it in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, also use this they to address, you know, an ostensible uh, uh, community of fellow travelers, uh, you know. Did did people identify as they who were? I mean, I mean, the poets were using this terminology, but were there people going around saying, you know, I don't identify I as a they, man or a woman? Or yes, there were people who, uh, in fact, the great Sufi poet Bulle Shah, the great Sufi poet Shah Hussain, um, 
uh, a bunch of great you know interesting sufi poets i'm thinking of the woman poet mirabai the bhakti poet um they have o- often even said in the midst of their poems you know i am beyond gender right um and and bulisha in fact famously bulisha was the 18th century punjabi sufi poet um whose poetry is sung to this day all over the subcontinent in the diaspora famously dressed up as a woman and wore sort of dancing bells and danced in the street so, to kind of express uh love for for you know his way of of living so obviously the stereotype in in america of muslim patriarchal societies is that right. um or of muslim societies is that they're heavily patriarchal you know um the most sort of toxically masculine <laughs> you know of all in some ways um you know and um i think obviously it's not widely known i would say it's not even minorly known in america that there is this tradition of right. genderlessness and um right. and this kind of like super um Somehow I don't think that would really make the, the major critics of uh, Islam <laughs> feel any better. Right, of course you know, not. But, but the thing I'm curious about is like in, um, like in, in your, your, for our listeners, um, they should realize like Ali is like a rock star um, in, in Pakistan and India and throughout that, South yeah. Asia. <laughs> and like, you know, when, when, like it's, even when he leaves our studio he'll walk down the street and if if there's a pakistani um person walking down the street they'll ask him for selfies or an indian person like it's so they you may get, yeah. you get huge audiences and um i'm curious like in well first of all like how much how much awareness is there of this kind of like very um kind of advanced gender um politics that that has been a part of your your culture and tradition for hundreds mm. of years how much awareness is so there now in pakistan of that and how much is your work like bringing about awareness of that i, I was going to yeah, yeah. going to come to that this is it i think um what's interesting is that as i learned in professor ali asani's course at harvard uh, you know which was understanding muslim cultures and societies um the bulk of muslim experience quote unquote um of the divine or of religion or of faith has happened through the arts right by the bulk we mean both in terms of the majority of muslims um at any given period um so the muslim the largest muslim populations by the way don't live in the middle east right this is all something a lot of americans are surprised to hear right. that it's not sort of muslims roaming around in the sands uh you know like it's south asia it's south indonesia. asia and indonesia absolutely um, bangladesh pakistan india indonesia malaysia together make up the you know the bulk of what we think of as the muslim world not saudi arabia not the united arab emirates not qatar not iran you know um and also then through history uh what we know of uh, what we think of as saudi arabia is uh less than 100 years old right uh as a formation um as a place uh what we think of as the united arab emirates is also a recent uh, you know what we think of as pakistan is a is a 72 or 73 year old uh, nation and i think in the pre national and then pre colonial periods um there were thriving cultures and uh thriving critical cultures um around these traditions of sort of gender diversity of religious pluralism 
this whole aesthetic kind of movement uh, was known and and you know celebrated uh, by uh, historians, by uh, kings, by rebel princes and princesses who are also often poets and and patrons of music in these traditions, uh, by uh, mendicants, by traders, by so there was a I would say something like a civil society around this sort of tradition. I think what's happened in the colonial and then in the post-colonial uh, phases is that the sort of language of the nation state, right, which has tended to be mostly because it's coming out of a colonial encounter, which is a violent encounter and, a, you know, um, it's tended to privilege narrow, uh, legalistic, uh, exclusionary, because a lot of these nation states were fashioned by carving up territories, right? So it was always about borders. I am what I am not, mm. that you define yourself against this perceived other. I mean, so much of Pakistani, the Pakistani nation states narrative has been not India. How do we differentiate ourselves from India to justify, you know, I don't know, military expenditure or whatever. Um, you know, so I think we've lost, to answer your question, that kind of legitimacy you know, or that license that this poetic and musical culture used to have, even though people still continue to access it through their quote-unquote, you know, entertainment or culture or or devotional life. So uh, in every wedding procession, in every funeral procession, in every religious ritual or rite, you will encounter these metaphors and these things. And people who otherwise on the street or in an interview will say to you, oh yeah, we believe in you know punishment for adultery and anybody who doesn't who deviates from the norm of sunni religion orthodox religion should be you know stopped from having a perspective voice etc will the next minute be sort of you know undulating uh in this uh, gathering of it's very sort of demarcated it's yeah. yeah so i think for me to bring this back into kind of a conversation what i do during my concerts is and also in my music videos is i perform the piece but I also kind of make an attempt to curate it in a way that I hope and intend will stimulate conversation around these metaphors and lead people to then make connections between things that should not belong together. And that's kind of what happened with my um, recent music video, uh, Chan Rat, which means it's a moonlit night. Um, it's a piece that I, I wrote and composed and, and I shot the video in Lahore. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a ghazal, which is a traditional initially Arabic poetic genre of rhyming couplets um, that are full of these metaphors. Um, and sort of it uses this refrain. Uh, so it goes like, um, this moonlit night's been a long time coming. The words on my tongue have been a long time coming. So a long time coming is the refrain that kind of stacks up all the, all the verses. Um, and, um, you know, we deliberately shot a video of it that was non-literal. We shot a video in a, actually in a dilapidated greenhouse in Lahore, uh, which looks like a bombed shelter or like it a... It feels like it's out of World War II. It or, does, right? Yeah, or, yeah. Like, or like, out, yeah, out of World yeah. War II yeah. or like a, some kind of camp or some kind of refugee space or um, it's a greenhouse in, a, in Punjab University. <laughs> it's oh, a really dilapidated well. greenhouse in Lahore, yeah. So, and we, we deliberately filled it up with people who are non-actors, just residents of Lahore, which include uh, somebody from the extremely persecuted uh, ethnic Hazara minority, uh, who's, she's an art student start studying in the National College of Arts, uh, a Chinese immigrant to Pakistan, um, a trans woman who lives in Lahore, 
Um, uh, we had a moment with these two boys who kind of touch each other tenderly, um, which we kind of didn't spell out what the nature of their relationship was. But I think a lot of people sort of perceived and understood that it was a gesture towards same-sex love. Yeah. Um, and we also had, uh, you know, two older men sitting together, uh, you know, etc. And and part of our part of the idea was that the refrain, right, the idea that a long time coming, you know, this moonlit night has been a long time coming, can be a metaphor for all of these relationships. Because a moonlit night is, you know, a half visible, a state of like half light, right? So it, it allows you in a romantic sense to kind of reveal things and express things that are otherwise forbidden mm-hmm. or that are otherwise not visible. And what's so interesting is that we released it on, I think, the 10th of February or 11th of February. And three days later, there was an incident on the India-Pakistan border, you know, and there was, we were on the verge of war, India and Pakistan. And virtually all the comments that I got under the video were like, this is so timely. This is about India and Pakistan. This is about how we need to come together through these. And yet there was no explicit <laughs> mention of India and Pakistan in that video. But to this day, now it's been four months, you know, the video has like a million views and it's because people have... So this is the power of that tradition is that when you teach people how to enter into metaphors, right, they learn to kind of exult in shared spaces. A metaphor is a shared space by its very nature, right? Because it's saying you could, it could mean this thing or it could mean that thing. You're using one image to convey another image. And so it opens up this kind of room for diversity, which I think is very, very... It feels very old-fashioned to people, but actually it's in some ways equipment for living in, in our world right now. Um, we, we're going to get to the advice question. I, I just have one um, more just hyper-general question about um, your impressions of living in the United States versus Pakistan in terms of gender. Um, one thing that I noticed when I went to Pakistan, and, and not just in Pakistan, but in other um, parts of uh the, the the global south and um, the east um, is that men who may or may not be gay hold hands walking down the street and that's something that n- just you literally never see um, two men unless they're in a relationship holding hands in the United but, States. How about two men like touching each other? Yeah, outside of like slapping each other on the back. Right, of, right. right. It's a quick yeah. tap, right? Yeah. A quick. You know, maybe yeah. in the locker room a butt slap, right? Right. Um, but um, but I'm just curious, like, uh, um, yeah. Do you? What are the obviously toxic masculinity exists in both places? Right. Uh, but 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 what what are the um, what are some of the like differences that you've experienced personally about like I think what it's like to be a man here versus there? Do you feel freer like to express feelings in one place versus the other? It's interesting. It's a mixture of things. And I, you know, I would, I would not want to present a grand theory of, yeah. of anything because, you know, I haven't made one. But I do think that, that you know, Pakistan, for example, is uh, someone described it to me as a homosocial culture, mm-hmm. right? This is a place where men will hold hands and walk on the street together, where they will kiss each other on the cheek, where they will, you know, sort of uh, cuddle and kind of lie down in parks together and kind of, you know, flake off the dandruff from one another's like <laughs> shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> and so and and it's very sweet and give each other massages in the park and like you know sit around together, um, and that's in some ways um, really kind of beautiful and wonderful, especially when you know you. I mean, I grew up with that 
on view, but then also watching, say, a sitcom like Friends in which Joey and Ross got awkward every time they touched each other, mm -hmm. you know? So that used to feel, I mean, when you grow up with something, you just assume it's the nature of things and it's true, right? But like now that I think about it, what signal was that sending out to the world, you know? And I think, you know, we need to, to apply a revisionist sort of perspective to a lot of the pop culture that we grew up with. But I also think that at some level, that that sort of extremely comfortable sort of uh, display of male affection or male, or as we say, male to male affection in a place like uh, Pakistan or India or Afghanistan or etc. I think it is linked to, linked to, I would not say because of or a result of, but I think it is related to the stigma or taboo that surrounds public displays of affection between men and women, mm -hmm. you know. Um, women will also uh, publicly uh, sort of caress one another in Pakistan um, and sort of hug each other and sort of walk around together. But I think it's if men and women, if a man and a woman were to hold hands in Pakistan, I think there would be hell to pay. Interesting. Yeah. That's so... That's, so, I, I, you know, yeah. it's a qualified right. sort of praise. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want it to come down to, um, you know, needing to ban affection between, you know different genders to yeah. allow men to hold hands. But right. I was just like imagining like, I wonder if any time in our lifetime, like in America, it will be culturally acceptable for men who are friends to just like hold hands and touch each other. And who knows? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, let's, let's dive into okay. the advice question. All right. Hey man. So my problem concerns my friends from college. We were housed together freshman year and none of us had a lot in common. But I actually love the fact that we all had different personality types and interests and values. I grew close to them and still keep in close touch with most of them. But over a decade since we've graduated, these differences, especially the differences in values, have come to grate on me. For one, while I pursued a career in nonprofit social justice work, most of them went, went into corporate and tech careers. I make way less money than they do, and when we meet up for dinner, they always choose expensive places that I can't really afford. They see themselves as carefree and fun-loving and never seem to be aware that these dinners put a serious strain on me financially. I protest sometimes, but I'm tired of being the grumpy downer complaining about money. What's even more frustrating is the fact that they see themselves as caring people but seem unwilling to do anything to back that up, including supporting me emotionally, logistically, or financially in the nonprofit startup I founded. It would be sad to lose those friendships. I've been friends with these guys for literally half of my life, but their lack of support for me and my work has made me question why I'm still bothering to stay friends with them. In college, the fact that we shared so little in common was appealing. Now it's maddening. Should I ditch these guys and try to make friends with more like-minded people? If I do that, won't I just be stuck in a bubble? Sincerely, Grumpy and Gowanus. So I thought of um, you for this question, Ali, in part... Um uh, so, so we get different questions, and we like to try to, if if possible, pair them with people we think might have um, just some personal resonance with with the dilemma. But I thought of you because, um, as we mentioned earlier, you you grew up in um, uh, a family that um, are your parents are both prominent dissidents. Um, I mean, they've had at points in their life serious death threats against them. Um, you have been instilled with a real passion for social justice um, that courses through you and that you deeply care about, and you particularly care, obviously, about um, social justice in your home, right? And, um, and I imagine that it's been hard 
particularly with your American friends who are so detached from Pakistan, to like get them to care like deeply about the stuff that you care about and write about and sing about. Um, and, um, and so that was just like one la layer that, that I was thinking maybe we could start off just like what it's like caring really deeply about social justice and like just being around people who may not. Like, how do you deal with that? Because it's not like all your friends are activists. Plenty of your friends aren't activists. Some of your friends are somewhat apolitical. How do you, how do you deal with that? You know, Sam, I'm going to have to <laughs> counter that okay. uh, with, with actually, I appreciate the, 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 you know, the question and how you framed it. Paradoxically, my experience has been in some ways the opposite. Okay. I mean, first of all, I, my friends in America are people like you and your wife, Sasha, and um, a bunch of other friends who are uh, non-South Asian or not, you know, migrants from a culture of the global South. And I think I'm friends with those people precisely because I share a sort of language of, um, if not protest, then certainly of introspection and of searching and of, of, of a, critical, a critical sort of language with those friends, whether it be in the realm of literature and the arts or whether it be about history and politics and about society. Um, so I, my white American friends are happily not people who, you know, don't get where I'm coming from but, or who are not interested in where I'm coming from. But you from. had some, like, for example, tech bros in college that you still keep up with, right? I mean, it's not like all of your friends are... Yeah, can we say who my college friends were <laughs> on this podcast or are we going to get shut down it's on the... It's up to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, my... Some of my... my are yeah, ruling the world right some, now. That's right. My college friends are ruling the world right now. My Yeah, my some of my college friends are, are the people who created Facebook and then went on to run it and uh, also Google and WhatsApp and Instagram. So yes, which is all the same now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I know people who work in tech um, in Palo Alto. I know people who work, who are trying to create startups in Pakistan. I know people who are activists uh, who work for what we call NGOs, uh, non-government organizations, which are basically non-profits inside Pakistan. I also know people who are uh, self-styled non-profits uh, themselves and exist entirely on Twitter as a sort of series of outrageous uh, sort of remarks. I think because of what I do, because I, again, am suspicious of people who deal purely in ideas or only in rhetoric, um, I find that my engagement with people um, and my appreciation or my my ability to connect with a person is no longer premised on or determined by these very conventional demographic boundaries. First of all, age, I find that I'm, some of my greatest friendships, relationships are people who are much older than me, sometimes in their 60s and 70s and 80s, you know. Um, again, I think that's because of the nature of what I do. I just have to interact with older people because I they're have the similar. repositories all of, the of all the wonderful things that I love. Yeah, yeah. All the therapists that are like the wise therapists that I study with are all way older than me. So there I you talk go. to a lot of older people. Um, I have no old friends. I wish I <laughs> I think um, also, um, you know, with people who have very different professions from mine, you know, I can sometimes have connections that are really profound. We can connect on something, 
or have find something that we share or find something that we're both curious about or whatever but what i hear in this advice question that you asked you know is um i think it is entirely possible and in fact happens too often that people who either are born into or acquire a lot of privilege um will not be mindful or not be able to um empathize with people who don't have that privilege those privileges uh, and i think that's something it's something that applies beyond the realm of job distinction or uh, even earning power you know yeah um and i think it's it it can happen in the realm of i mean you can be friends with someone who is coming from a different neighborhood you know or who's had a very different political experience or who's you know has a very different sense of who they are uh, in in respect to the city that you both live in um and i think the thing the one thing that i would that would that would sort of signal to me that this friend is a keeper and this friend is not is curiosity i think because i think even empathy is something that we all stress these days but empathy is not so easily arrived at i think it's something that has to be worked towards that's a great point actually um as you were saying that i was thinking like one of my favorite friends um is like works at, at the most corporate kind of um you know sort of ruthlessly capitalistic job but he's an incredibly curious incredibly open-minded incredibly empathic person and incredibly sensitive and mindful and doesn't do stuff like you know invite everyone to the most expensive restaurant and expect everyone to well like, then you should pay for it right <laughs> if you're inviting everybody to an expensive right. restaurant right and i mean that's that that is that should be part of the mindfulness of like if 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 you really want to go to that restaurant just be aware that like splitting a tab where each person has to pay 250 bucks might not be easy for the nonprofit guy but but anyway so i think you're right to to point out that um that that what really matters is is sort of curiosity, openness, empathy. But I think, yeah, this guy. It sounds like that's not the kind of friends that he. Well, I <laughs> must. Right you know, I um, sometimes sometimes we get a little bit of criticism or pushback about like how how deep do you want to psychoanalyze someone? But I can't help it. Um, <laughs> and where I went with uh, with this question was about the issue of asking. I guess is what it made me think of because it. You know, he, he talks a lot about wanting to be seen, but less, and I'm choosing to view this as intentionally less about asking to be seen, yeah. and which is a very vulnerable thing to do and a hard thing for me to do in my own life. When I, when I write something and it's published, I never really, it's very uncomfortable for me to like send out the link to my friends and be like, hey, I, re I wrote this and, and expect anyone to read that. I just sort of like, I think I cope with that discomfort by being like oh it doesn't matter right i'm not writing it for my friends i'm writing it for the world so i don't need my friends to read it right that's just an ego rush that i'm looking for you you justify it that way like i don't need that ego rush yeah right? yeah i don't need why should i need like my the my friends to read this it's not for them but really i do like what i need is to feel loved and supported and cared mm -hmm. for and people are interested in me and and I'm just hearing, you know, not to make my issues your issues, Grumpy and Kiwanis, but I'm hearing something of that in this. Like you, you've devoted your life to something that um, must feed you on multiple levels. Social justice work. Nobody does that superficially, right? It's a commitment, especially if or it, nobody you know, does it in the long term. Superficially. Yes, true, fair, I think fair. Plenty of That's people fair, do it in short term. Absolutely, <laughs> it's, it is. I guess if it's real, when I think of like real social justice work, I don't think of that as superficial, yeah. right? Um, 
And if it's a nonprofit, all the more so because you're getting less, you're not getting financially compensated for it. So there's something about it that really draws you and yet not feeling seen by your friends, right? That's what this whole letter is about. Can I ask two, yeah. two questions to go yeah. grumpy and go on us? Yeah. Um, one, why are you assuming that friends you made in college, which is such an artificial environment, where kind of this like faux equal atmosphere is enforced by everybody being the same age, everybody living in the same dorms, everybody eating in the same sort of dining halls or whatever, you know, which is nothing like real life that happens right after, right? I mean, surely if you're even five years into life after college, you will have realized that college is not a microcosm of the world, right? So why, why do you feel that you have to keep meeting people who you may have met in this very different context and different environment? Surely, um, you know, you should meet people that you want to meet or friends from college that you want to meet. So the first question is, why do you want to meet these friends? Do you want to meet them just because you were friendly with them or lived with them in college? Or do you want to meet them because they offer you other things? I didn't hear that, you know, the element of, um, right. you know. What and you presumably, say? I mean, to give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, you know, he's he's complaining about the worst qualities of these friends, but presumably... Unless he's just a doormat, presumably he still likes. Yeah, he likes. He still them. likes hanging out with them uh, uh, on a certain level, and and there are aspects of these guys that that he still enjoys. And and of course, I mean, we've had actually a similar question to this a while ago about sort of dealing with how to deal with a friend who's being a jerk to you. Like, do you just drop the friend, especially if it's an old friend? And I think it's complicated if it's an old friend because. There is something very powerful about just <clears throat> having, you know, whatever, 15 years of accumulated experience that you can share with someone, even if, you know, you find their values abhorrent a lot of the time. You still have all these memories in common, and that there's something powerful about that. But I think, I think like, um, I think that there must be something other than just, you know, inertia that um, is leading this guy to, to still... Uh, invest in these friendships and um and and i think like uh and i think it's it, it's i don't know i mean there's two there's two levels to the question one is that her, his friends are just rude rude about um mm. money but i think the deeper hurt that this guy is experiencing is the fact that he's doing this social justice work and he feels i guess i guess maybe maybe the psychoanalyzing <laughs> um kind of track uh, I'm kind of feeling. I think that he feels just unseen, and he wants to be like, yes, he wants money from these guys, but I think he wants them to appreciate like the his struggle and the work that he's doing. And um, uh, you know, like I'm not sure he needs he needs like you know them all to be like top donors to this thing. I would imagine if his friends were going to support his nonprofit, it would be saying, you know, we care about you and we care about what's important to you. And so, you know, we want to support you. Yeah. But it's, but, but here's the other tricky thing about this. Mm. I feel like, um, with your articles, like, um, that's like a quick thing to just be like, hey, I, I wrote this article. Can you spend five minutes and read it? And you Very know, uncomfortable and for me And then somebody could send... And, and even that's uncomfortable. But this is like... This is a guy who is... What's tricky about this is that when you work in nonprofit social justice work and all of your friends are just like selfish corporate tech bros who don't care about social justice, yeah. um, 
it gets into this tricky territory of like, are you being morally superior if you like you talk about your work? Like, are you casting an implicit judgment on on their values as being shallow? You know that they went and pursued wealth rather than social justice, and it gets in it gets into all this like potentially guilting territory. And and there's a part of me that just feels like, um, you know, this guy just kind of needs to embrace the fact that like social justice is a lonely road, and you know, uh, it's tough. And you can't just expect, like, most people to appreciate, you know, and, and applaud um, the stuff that you're doing, even some of your old friends. And maybe that's an argument for what Ali is getting at. It's like he really just, you know, like, he needs to surround himself with more people who are on that lonely You know, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about, now I'm thinking in, like, really sort of suddenly glowy uh, terms about the culture that I come from. Because I do feel like, a, like an immigrant to America, which is something i am i suppose um uh, americans talk too much <laughs> about things they over talk things mm -hmm. i don't think talk is the solution to everything you know it is very helpful and it's very important to talk about things and to articulate things but i think this license and this entitlement to talk all the time and this idea that like things are not real until they're talked about or they don't exist or they're not it's not possible to be or that something will just can't register unless it's talked about endlessly between people. I see this all the time in restaurants and coffee shops, like on the radio, is that people are just, you know, like talking it out over and over and over again. And it sometimes it just expresses a kind of selfishness and a kind of it's 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 self-referential. It's like, you know, validate the I in me, validate me. I am so important here. I need you to validate me more. And it's like we can only be friends if your I and my I are like, you know, wedged together in a place where neither is like feeling. I mean, I come from a culture where I have seen people have and sustain very deep, profound friendships, relationships, you know, marriages over <laughs> decades uh, without necessarily talking about how they feel underrepresented in a relationship. And yet, working out that conflict or working out their differences through through a third relationship, through, you know, an enterprise, something that they do together or an activity that they do together. Like, you know, like my grandmother has a whole host of friends who come from different religious sects, who sort of have different, you know, um, uh, professional backgrounds, social class backgrounds, etc. But they're friends because they play bridge together, you know. Um, I know musicians who are friends, other musicians who they would consider uh, infidels or profligates or like, you know, beyond the pale in so many ways. And yet the music allows them to come together. And there's this understanding that in the realm of in that shared space, we will not broach, you know, verbally the things that make us feel different from one another. Now, I know that that's different from you feeling put upon by somebody else, right? Which I think when, if, if a rich friend invites you to a restaurant and insists that like you all go Dutch or whatever, yeah, this is not okay. I don't think that's okay. <laughs> but I think this, what I'm hearing a little bit of is this idea that like this person may want to be validated by these friends, you know? And I think expecting friends who very obviously didn't choose that path to validate that. I mean, what can they do? I mean, you can't force somebody to invest in your nonprofit or to give you money for your activity. I don't think that's necessarily fair. Uh, you know, and if you want them to ask you about what you're doing, 
you know, why don't you tell them about what you're doing? Or like create that, you know, maybe ask them to come with you to a, 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 an activity or a, or a museum exhibit or a, or a, you know, a, a talk that addresses some of your very deeply held beliefs. There is a real risk, though, that like, um, and and I imagine possibly Grumpy and Gowanus has told them, and maybe they don't care. And um, I'm thinking about <laughs> um, just this question just reminded me, like, I don't know. I'm sure you both get you get emails from friends who are like, "Hey, I'm on the advisory board for this thing," or "I'm you know th- this nonprofit I care about is doing this thing, and like we need some money," and I'm. If it's not my thing, I'm just kind of like, well, that's nice that they're doing that. I never even think they're actually asking me for anything. And I'm a little embarrassed reading this question to think about what it feels like to be the friend who is sending it to everyone. Um, but is that grounds enough for like to, thinking like, that your friend is a bad friend? No. Right. Uh, and and honestly, for me, if I engaged in some way, maybe I would care. Like if I, if I knew how it affected me, I think the... The meaning in the the personal meaning for me and the meaning in the relationship would change how I felt if I knew they were sending it because they they wanted to feel cared for by me. Honestly, I would give money then. You know, like I do care, and if that's how like you need this from me, that's much more compelling than like give it because uh, this is an it's, important thing. You know, yeah, like like I got an email from someone who was doing like a run for cancer or something yeah. like that, and uh, this week, and I and I didn't give because I was just like. Um, it's not my issue. <laughs> I, I mean, I care about cancer. It's a, it's a really important thing. Uh, uh, we should we should donate to cure cancer, of course. But it just felt like this is a transactional thing where he's just sending out. Um, I don't know where he just wants something transactional from me rather than something that um, I don't know that that that's more like a reflection of the fact that we have a, a relationship to one another that I care about the issues that he's passionate about. So, right. I don't if know, it was like, I'm, I'm running this because of my father and this like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Like not to, not to blah, blah, blah that, but like if, if I felt the meaning for him, then, uh, and then it would move me and I'd probably give, but if it's just like, it's for cancer, I don't know. Yeah. Do we have a little bit of time. Can I just ask yeah. a sort of apparently tangential, but not really tangential question sure. related to yeah. this, which is that as somebody who grew up as quite a bit of a loner, um, I had this very busy, hectic social life where I was, you know, had a lot of friends. and but, but I had also, for various reasons, this very private, personal sort of like dream life of my own. And I think my being in the arts, and I think it applies to everybody across the board who seeks a life in the arts, is that the part of you that makes art is mostly coming from a place of solitude or a place that loves solitude or mm-hmm. seeks it out or, or feels comfortable with solitude. A little bit of what I'm hearing here, and I hope I'm not like, you know, reading too much too far into it, is the culture of tribes, you know, of packs and tribes, which I think is a real incubator of toxic masculinity. I'm sorry, I know this is not about toxic masculinity, but it's related to the culture of toxic masculinity because I think to, first of all, to assume that because you were together in a place like college, you will continue to be together. You know, or that that formation has to hold somehow. I wonder about that. You know, uh, why is that something that we should assume? I mean, I hear too often people sort of treating it like a kind of moral thing. Oh, that person doesn't doesn't stay in touch, or like didn't stay in touch, or like you know. But staying in touch is like a morally superior. It or is good. funny that like 
it's considered moral to stay in touch, even if you don't like someone. You know, like I will often, because I'm traveling or living f- between continents, it'll happen that I'm meeting a friend after a year or like after two years. And I have found that it will be possible to like pick up from where we left off. I love relationships like that. I love relationships and I actually seek and, and cherish relationships like that. Relationships where I don't feel that there's this constant like balance sheet that is on display. You know, I mean, there are friendships in which you have that require more work. And, you know, sometimes those relationships are absolutely worth the work that you put into them. But I think just assuming almost as though you've 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 derived from the culture of 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 groups and of of social formations that you just have to stick with your social formation, because if you don't, if you lose your college friends or like are not able to, you know, repeatedly see them then you're like, it says something about your success as a social being or something. Like, I, I, I would caution against that, you know? Like, I don't think that as adults, we are, we should, we should just assume that because we happen to share a playground with somebody which was not a context of our choosing, which was not a setting of our choosing, where we made friends before we were fully formed, etc. And I think college is like that too. A lot of people who are at college are not yet, in complete possession of their of their characters of they haven't yet made the profound choices or decisions about their life about as we can see from this you know what your the career path that you take says something about who you've decided to be etc yeah. i think if there's those divergences on view and if you feel that it's causing you strife and it's causing you pain maybe see them less you know or like see them in situations where it's not an expensive restaurant <laughs> like maybe it's like see them in some other yeah, space i i do wonder if um there is a there's a kind of subtle feeling of dependence on these people, yeah. right? And it's like if if you were less dependent, if you had these other relationships that felt more right, yeah. um, would this bother you as much? Right. Probably not. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about in my own life, like some some of my older friends, uh, I might not older. Because as I said before, I You're don't not. have any old friends. Sadly, <laughs> uh, some of my friends that I've been in friendships with for the longest who i have um drifted apart from in terms of i mean the most clear way i think would be like some of my friends who are just in the uh really interested in making a lot of money right um and uh that is something that um i mean i i'm human i also want to make a lot of money I think very few people your choices don't, don't reflect that. But uh, but I've chosen incredibly low low uh, low net worth <laughs> careers because I find them more interesting. I've I've made the choice that like I care more about some finding work that's interesting than finding work that's remunerative, and um uh and you know I think I think in times of insecurity where I feel bad about myself I get superior and I'm like oh like. I have better values and like my life is better and you know, fuck these guys. Right. And then in times like now where I'm, I'm in a pretty good place now, now I'm actually able to hang out with those guys. And it's a really interesting experience for me because I don't feel um, superior to them. I feel different from them. Right. And I actually look at them and I'm like, sometimes I think like, so I'm, I guess you could say an anti-capitalist, right? Like I, I think capitalism is um, problematic, whatever. Right. And some of my friends who are just total capitalists and and materialists, I actually find it interesting to hang out with them in a non-judgmental way and just look at 
their lives. And I'm like, oh, this is this is what it's like to um, not have a problem with capitalism or materialism. And like, that's kind of nice to see that they enjoy their fine things yeah. and enjoy, um, uh, you know, the, the the game of competition. And like, you know, that's not. That's I, I don't think I could ever get to the point where I could enjoy that more than like writing fiction or whatever. But like it's kind of nice that like they've found a way to, you know, enjoy doing that stuff and be happy doing that stuff. In my bitter times, I'm like, there's no way they could be happy. Like, they're clearly <laughs> just deluding themselves. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. So um, when you're less triggered, you're more likely to be like open to people. Yeah. Right. Like Yeah. Yeah. But I also I mean, look, I also think like um, I if if. My only friends um, that I hung out with were were capitalists, uh, you know, uh, who were really interested in like accumulation, and I had no friends who were interested in like literature and social justice. Um, you need to feel like your best, the parts you like about yourself are seen in others, right? I mean, yeah, and I think it's easier to seen by others. Yes, that's what <laughs> I mean. Yeah, and I think it's easier sometimes when you're you're hanging out with like-minded people. He ended. It, he, to be seen <laughs> he ended with that question and you know will i just be in a bubble like i think about this also with with um my meditation practice like um i actually don't have that many friends who meditate um but the few i do i like really try to keep up with them because honestly it's kind of it's a really difficult practice um and i'm not talking about sitting on the cushion that part is difficult but the really difficult part is like trying to be mindful in your day-to-day -day life which is nearly impossible um and uh and and it's and it's exhausting and it feels lonely to not be able to talk about that and to use the kind of specific terminology of people who like understand what meditation is on a deeper level so i really cherish those friendships and i do try to keep up with them because it's it's lonely to exist um in a world uh full of non-meditators when this is a really important thing mm. to me so i think I think like you need to have some people in in your bubble. Like he needs to have some people in the social justice world who can I, can specifically empathize with the kind of stuff he's going through. Because I guarantee it, those other friends can like intellectually conceive of like, oh, it's a hard, lonely road to be a, a nonprofit right. social know. justice activist. But they have no idea how what his life is like. I really <laughs> do think, just especially in my experience as a therapist, that shame emerges from loneliness and isolation if you're if you feel alone it's natural to ask the question well what's wrong with me that i'm alone you know that how did i find myself here it must be because there's something wrong with me so to undo that and to find connections that um that affirm you and that um where you where you will feel seen and and have that that special resonance that comes with that that kind of friendship where you're on the same wavelength i think i think this person needs that yeah but you know what to get to ali's early point um i know we're not we try not to give advice and of course we always end up giving advice but i feel like this listener would be upset if we didn't address probably what i imagine stepping in inside his shoes is actually one of the most important questions which is how sh how can he actually get his friends to donate to May his nonprofit. Yeah. Oh, is that the question? <laughs> I, wonder, I actually wonder. But go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say. I mean, if the if the <laughs> if, like the agenda here is to get your friends to come around more to who you are, and to accommodate your life more and your reality more. Although he's not even saying that. He kind of wants them to just be more like him. 
I think, rather than just appreciate him. But but go on. Really? Yeah. I'm rereading it. Well, yeah. go ahead while I yeah. while I read it and I'll decide. Yeah, I mean, if it's about just being more, if you want to be heard more or seen more, I think maybe humor is a good way to go about it. Write your friends a funny group email and say, "Hey guys, the last time we hung out, you know, the bill was this, and you know, uh, it's great when you're you know earning X a hundred thousand million dollars a year, but like when you're not." Uh, you know, it like me, it may make more sense to go and hang out at a, you know, X place or Y place where. So maybe next time we can all go to the free the subway, to the subway. <laughs> That's really mean. <laughs> or maybe we can all just go to the Met Museum if you're in New York, or like you know, go and have lunch at. Met like Museum is a beautiful suggestion. The rich people can pay fifty dollars, exactly, and he can pay one five cents, exactly, <laughs> yeah. and they can be surrounded by grandeur and like you know, thought-provoking stuff from all cultures of the world. And it's a great place to talk about like. Nonprofits. <laughs> so this is the part you're referring to, Sam. It says, what's even more frustrating is the fact that they see themselves as caring people but seem unwilling to do anything to back that up, including supporting me emotionally, logistically, or financially in the nonprofit startup I founded. And I guess it's like, I'm just going to highlight and underline supporting me, right? Like, it could be financially, but it's also emotionally, logistically. He does list emotionally um, does. as an option. So... Um, so I guess he is saying the fact that he lists that as an option is saying that like if they supported him emotionally that that might be enough even if they don't um want to lend a hand with his nonprofit um but uh but I guess I wonder like I don't know a lot of what we talk about on this show is like how can men directly address other men because I think women women it have would a much really mean time. a lot to me yeah. if yeah. you Blah. Right. Like right. Sasha, my wife, who Ali knows, like has a much easier time just saying something like that to one of her female friends who's 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 hurt her. It would really mean a lot to me if you um That's you it. Know. I mean, just to be clear, this is why I don't like to send uh I don't like to say it would really mean a lot to me. That's hard for me. It's uncomfortable. So when I don't email people like, hey, I wrote this thing, it's because I don't want to say oh, that. Because it's admitting weakness, which which is uh, uh, admitting like you know, quote unquote, effeminacy. To be I mean, like, I'm poking fun I'm, at myself because obviously yeah. I don't like this about myself and I, I wish I could open-heartedly tell people what I care about, including the fact that I made something. Um, so I would encourage this person not to uh, uh, be like me and, and maybe open up. If, if it means a lot to you that your friends support your nonprofit, I would I would really give that thought. It seems like, is that really necessary? But if it, if you land on that's important to you, then say it. Right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I wonder what would satisfy him though. Um, like, well, like fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. Well, I mean, an he's endowment. saying emotionally, but I wonder, like, is that like, what does that look like? A token, like, because here's here's I'm imagining this play out. Like, if he writes them a, a you know a wholehearted email, being like, you know, guys, like, I feel like it's a lonely road working on this nonprofit. I'm struggling financially. The work I do is really important, but I feel like I don't get enough sort of recognition or support uh, or appreciation for, for, for this hard work that I'm doing. It would mean a lot if like you guys could just like, um, you know, uh, I give me a little boost or whatever. Then, then like I could see some of them being like, ah, that's so soft. Like and making fun of you. Some of them would, would be nice and be like, Oh, okay. Like, uh, you know, I, I hear that. And, um, I'm really proud of you for doing this work. And then they just like, I imagine like that they give that little token gesture but and then, then just like, go back to not giving a shit. And I, I mean, think that's I guess part of what I just come to, <coughs> come to like the conclusion of like 
I, I kind of think the realistic thing here is that like he has to be comfortable with the fact that these other people are not going to give a shit about his nonprofit in the way that he wants them to. I wrote a novel. I would have loved if every person I care about read it and told me that it meant a lot to them, but I had to get comfortable with the fact a lot of people don't give a shit about books at all. <laughs> Some people do give a shit about books and didn't give enough of a shit to read my book. And I can't go around feeling like just perennially frustrated that like this thing that I cared about and worked on other people didn't care about, you know, I can't, I, I can't live my life that way. Um, what do you think, Ali? <laughs> I agree. I've been through that experience so many times myself. So I know all about that. Um, the experience of making something or pursuing something that your peers may not care about. And I am very comfortable with that. In fact, I like it that way. And I really resent it when I have to sort of, f you know, appear to fit in with um, my peers in any given context just because we all were together once and are like supposed to be like identical units in some like larger scheme. And now we have to replicate that feeling all over again. What for? I don't know. Uh, you so know? Also, and I like, actually keep, sorry, friends and I'm in touch with <laughs> friends who kind of harbor some kind of eccentricity or something that makes them feel quirky and singular. Yeah. And I think those are the reasons that I'm actually friends with most of my friends is because I feel at some level we all have a sort of spiritual connection that comes from knowing that, mm -hmm. you know, what it is to, to work in uh, by yourself, to be on your own, you know? If we flip this around like... Uh, grumpy and Gowanus, like, do you give a shit about like your friend's hedge fund? <laughs> you know I mean? Like, you don't care at all. Nobody does. You, like, if their hedge fund is going under, you're not like, oh, let me bail out the hedge fund, or like, even that would never right. even occur to you, right? We don't like, or like, even giving moral support to your friends for running their hedge yes. fund, right? No, yeah. and actually, that's a great. Maybe point. they need it. So the comical, <laughs> so so the caricature <laughs> version is like, do you give a shit about your friend's hedge fund? And of course, he doesn't. But like, do you? ever stop to truly do the thought experiment of like thinking about your friend who works at the hedge fund on a day where all of the bets that he made went south and he's feeling unbelievable stress and terror that he's going to be fired and that the standard of living that you know he's been at could be completely upended like Probably not. You probably were like, oh, first world problem. Oh, like who gives I just, a shit? I also just want to be clear like I, you know, I'm saying that not to like shame you but more to just point out, I think you're you're sort of displacing your anxiety about your work. Sorry to psychoanalyze again, but it's just kind of what I do. But, you know, like if your nonprofit is struggling, if you're financially stressed about it, you're looking to your friends yes. to solve that problem. And that's really something that actually none of us would would really do if we, right. you know, and, and that's sort of so I would my if for concrete advice, like you do need to solve that problem. Like yeah. it's telling you that it's very stressful for you, but it, this is not something to put on your friends. I, there's a lot more we could talk about, but, but let's, let's end. I on, just, and yeah. I also, because I feel like we sort of landed in a, a slightly harsh note know, towards I this know, person. I and I guess I would just say like, I think it's great that this is the work that you found something that calls to you that you're doing it. I'm sorry. It's, I know that it's always stressful even when it's successful. So I'm sorry that, you know, there's financial, stress going along with the work that you're doing because that's just one of the great injustices of the world that the people who do the work that we all need uh, get compensated so so little often for it. the worst compensated yeah. are the most important so i'm i genuinely like i i do i 
I'm sorry that that's that's your situation. And I and and maybe one of the ways to take care of yourself is to find other relationships where you feel supported. And these friends, it's okay that these friends aren't that source of support for you. You really owe it to yourself to find that support. Since yeah. what you're doing is, hard. I agree. And you know, and 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 also like, I can say that um, I don't know Grumpy and Go Honest, but I'm maybe proud is a weird word to use for someone you don't know, but I feel like um, admiration that he's sticking out, you know, and, and sticking it out and on this path and dealing with like the indignities of having to, you know, not afford the bill, but doing, but staying true to his values. So like we, we appreciate you uh, grumpy and go on us. If you want to be friends with us, (laughs) give us a call. I don't really know you, but (laughs) Um, Ali, do you, um, have a quote or a gem of wisdom that you heard in your life or that somebody shared with you that uh, you return to over and over that you find particularly valuable? could be two if you can't pick just one. I think it is that thing that I kind of started with, that couplet. I think it's a 19th century Urdu poem that says, step out of the workshop of the mind and step into the tavern of love, you know? Um, Sometimes I think just allowing, surrendering control and allowing an emotional experience to take you somewhere to a place of truth is a much more helpful way of resolving conflict, of overcoming fear, of dealing with the challenge than trying to conquer it or control it through what you think is your knowledge or your rationality or your mind, you know? And I think that that tavern of love actually usually is a metaphor for relationships. I think human relationships and human interactions that are meaningful are the key to peace. And that's my, that's what I'm telling myself every day these days. <laughs> where, where can people find you, um, your, your YouTube videos, your social media stuff? They can find my YouTube videos on YouTube uh, where they can look for, they can just type my name and see quite a few of my um, videos or they can subscribe to my YouTube channel which is Ali Sethi Official, A-L-I-S-E-T-H-I Official or they can follow me on Instagram um, where I post all kinds of crazy things. Including uh, his very cool outfits. Ali is an exceptional my silly outfits. sartorialist. It's my Instagram handle is also Ali Sethi Official. I regret the official because it makes me sound like an official. <laughs> I wish there had been Alif Sethi here or Alif Sethi now or something, but like those are now taken. Is there some troll who has like an unofficial? No, I think there's just a lot of South Asians in the world. So <laughs> I think that's why the name gets right, used. Right, right. All right, everyone, that's it for our show this week. If you have a question, you can send it to us at heymanpod at gmail.com or better yet, give us a call. Leave a voicemail at 917-426-4326. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at heymanpod. And if you have a second, leave us a review, please. Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Podcasts, we love them. Thanks.